Where did you like to play as a child? I ask this question a lot because childhood memories shape us into the people we become. Welcome to Play It Forward, a worthy podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Ritson. Thanks so much for joining me. I talk a lot about play. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm an educator, and I'm a playground designer. So I want to gather some of my favorite people who are advocates of children and nature and create a space to have an honest conversation about getting more kids outside. The power of play is very often underestimated and I think we all need a little more play in our lives. Our next guest has influenced Worthy Playground since the very beginning. She defined the six categories of risky play and her commitment to research of children's right to free play has changed the lives of countless children. A professor at the Department of Physical Education and Health at QMUC, she has a master's degree in sports science from the Norwegian School of Sports Science and a PhD in psychology from the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. And lastly, she is an author of one of the best named papers in history, Scary Funny, a qualitative study of risky play amongst preschool children. A big warm welcome to the worthy podcast, Play It Forward, uh, hero of mine, Alan Sensetta. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Um, we were talking off air briefly and um, a bit of backstory. And for anyone that's heard me speak before, I've probably referenced your research um, from even before I was building playgrounds as an early childhood educator. So I'm just going to say thank you for the influence. And I've seen that light bulb moment in so many educators when you can break the, down those categories and, and talk about um, unsafe freedom and things along those lines. So your research is reaching the world, so I appreciate you. Thank you very much. It's very nice to hear that. All the way in Australia. Um, as we yep. start off with all guests on the Play It Forward podcast, we go a bit of a flashback. Where did you like to play mm -hmm. as a child? Uh, I would say I was playing all over the place. <laughs> but uh, usually I played in my neighborhood, which was a neighborhood with a lot of children. So, and we were children from like five, six years old up until maybe 11, 12, all played together. And we played a lot of games and we were roaming around in the neighborhood and we had a little forest in our neighborhood so we were climbing trees we had swing ropes that we tested we were spying on the older children who did exciting stuff and yeah we had a very free uh childhood where we were just called out uh, home for dinner and then we went out again uh, so but I also, in the Norwegian culture, uh, most people have cabins in the mountains or by the seashore. And my family had a place by the seashore with a large forest area. So I did a lot of playing in the forest there and by the seashore. So building uh, tree huts, climbing trees, uh, jumping from stone to stone in, by the, the seashore going out in a row, rowing boat, do you call it yeah. that? Yeah. yeah. And uh, of course, in the winter, as a true Norwegian, I did a lot of uh, playing with snow, sledding down hills, skiing a lot, ice skating, 
Yeah. Yeah. Things like that, which you probably do not do a lot of in Australia. <laughs> no, maybe more water skiing than, than snow skiing yeah. over here. And uh, surfing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, by the sounds of it, really embodying what you're all about these days in risk and risk in play and, yep. and that that category that you've def- come to define in your later years. How did you come from exploring, experiencing to finding yourself in researching this topic? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, as you may have understood, I was quite a small risk seeker myself when I was Mm. a child. So I was exploring everything. And I'm very grateful that I had parents who let me do that. And Mm. they gave me the freedom to to explore whatever I wanted, uh, both dur- in play and also in, you know, sporting activities. Um, and when I started my education, I was very interested in risk seeking and sensation seeking. Mm-hmm. So I did my master's study on um, 12 to 16 year old uh, adolescents yep. uh, and how they kind of uh, try to seek the or to to get their sensation seeking uh drive fulfilled and i found that the ones who didn't have families or neighborhoods or friends where they could do positive risk seeking many of them ended up with negative risk seeking and some even more on a criminal record so that was the starting point and then uh soon after that i had my first son my first child and by that time the Norwegian government had passed the uh, playground safety regulations in Norway and I was walking around in my neighborhood with my little son in a trolley and he and I saw that the playgrounds suddenly disappeared and I was thinking what are they doing with children's play environments they're just disappearing and all at least all the exciting stuff uh, is disappearing. And also by that time, I was engaged in my work at Queen Maud University College for early childhood education. So I was also interested in young children's uh, opportunities for play and movement. So, um, yeah, so that was kind of a, a the interest was sparked uh, because I wanted to see how this would influence children where if we restricted them from exciting play and thrill seeking and risk seeking in their play uh, is that a good way to 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 develop or or is that not so good which was my thought so so that was uh, the starting point I wanted to explore in the first place in the Norwegian context how this um, how this worked out and you touched on it there um, the younger children are mostly considered um, when talking about play and risky play, but you actually started in those adolescent years. How important is play yep. for those forgotten um, timeline of the adolescence? Well, they would probably not call it play themselves, yes. but it's a very important. It's activities, it's friendship, and it's having something to do. <clears throat> and I think a lot of uh, cities and I know my 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 dear friend and colleague in England Tim Gill is very int- into uh, you know urban uh, 
play environments and activity environments. And I think that's very important for that age group because they are, are not on the playgrounds necessarily. They are seeking out in the neighborhood city. And if you don't have places to, to, yeah, to, to play or to be active and to, to, to seek, uh, to experience risks and thrills and excitement, I think uh, that's a very bad thing for that age group. They, they will be bored and they will find other ways to, to try to, to get that thrill. Yeah, we're kind of in the stage now in Australia where a lot of people are going, oh, teens, activities only mm. just at the moment. So it seems to be yeah. a point of interest. But how much does those informative early years impact how a child plays as a teen? Well, I think you, you the, the early years is kind of the ground for everything you do later on. Mm. And we can see that in, in studies on sport, uh, physical activity, that if you, you kind of uh, lay the ground for the interest and the habits for, for physical activities in the early years, uh, there's a higher chance that you'll keep on being physical active as an, uh, an older person. Uh, or yeah, in adult and, and adolescent time. So I think if you, if you through your childhood, learn how to, to get this thrill seeking needs mm. uh, fulfilled, uh, for at least for those who are high sensation seekers, uh, you will have kind of tools yeah. uh, for having those experiences that you need, uh, that you, that makes you happy. Uh, so I think uh, being able to, to, to climb and to, you know, ski f- fast downhill or mm. surf in Australia or whatever yeah. uh, is very important so that you don't, yeah, you know, find other ways uh, or, and more negative ways for, for doing it. Yeah. And for those of our listeners that aren't familiar with risk and they're listening to this for the first time, um, they might be jumping into that default of risk is something to be avoided because they're used to that workplace health and safety and these assessments and risk is bad. So from a play standpoint, could you define what risk in play is for our listeners? It's play where you're experiencing thrill and excitement and maybe some unpredictability. You don't know what is going to happen. Uh, but there's also um, a chance for a negative consequence. So you could, if you're, if you have bad luck, you could get injured uh, during the activity. And for the very young uh, children, uh, the most important thing, of course, is the first part of that, uh, the experience, the excitement, yeah. the thrill. Uh, while the thing that adults usually focus on is the possible negative outcome. And that's why many adults are restricting it or, or and even forbid it. Yeah, and risk is, for me, I perceive risk is it's inevitable. So why are we yep. trying to protect our children from risk and failure when it's something they're going to have to deal with? Um, what is the impact on the child for those parents listening um, if they're not exposed to this risk management and create that barometer of risk and hazard? Well, yes, as you wisely pointed out, uh, uh, nothing is risk-free and the world is certainly not risk-free. Mm-hmm. So 
to let your child explore risk and learn how to handle risk step by step during uh, the early years and childhood would actually make them better at managing and assessing risks uh, when you are letting them out in the world. Yeah. <laughs> when you no longer ma monitor them all the time and you have to trust that they are actually managing the world outside, uh, you can be more um, relaxed uh, because they have uh, actually uh, um, learned how to manage it. If you're restricting them, they will, of course, they will develop physical skills. They will, their motor skills will develop, their cognitive skill, skills will develop, but they will miss out on the um, uh, experience and they will not have the experience base uh, that, they could, that would uh, make them better risk managers. So they will not know, for instance, that if you climb a tree, there could be a rotten branch up there. You have you, you can't put your full body weight on that branch without testing it first. That's something you learn, and that kind of is a bodily knowledge uh, for children. So yeah, so it, it's um, it's it's a lot of learning. Uh, even though for children it's only play, it's also a lot of learning. Um, yeah, so that's so it it goes. It's it's about uh, both the the physical uh, and motor side of it, but also the psychological uh, effects of it. Yeah, and that's something we see time and time again. Parents considering that it's just a, a physical realm. Risk and play is a physical realm. Um, you came to define six categories of risk and play. So I've always been intrigued on what was the process to define that diversity in risk and play? Well, I decided to, to focus my PhD on uh, risky play. And I was doing a lot of searching and I found that there were uh, a lot of discussion, at least in media, about risky play mm -hmm. and the, the decline of play and children are not allowed to take risks anymore. Um, but none had uh, defined it or yeah. categorized it. And I was interested in going out in the field to study it. So I needed some kind of categories yeah. and I needed to know what to look for. Mm. So I had to, to, to start at scratch. Uh, so I went out in several uh, preschools uh, and that's Barnehage uh, in Norway. It's kind of early years uh, settings. Uh, so it's for children from uh, around zero to six when they start school. And I did a lot of observations of how children uh, played. And I also did interviews with children and uh, practitioners, teachers in those preschools to explore what, what risky play was. Mm. Uh, and so, so actually it is, yeah, it is teachers or but first and foremost children who have taught me what risky play is and helped me to define those six categories and any any of those children's statements stick with you that really were that light bulb aha moment yeah uh, yeah uh, the the scary funny as you you started with <laughs> was was something that a lot of children said and it was quite funny because at that time as you said, I have, have a PhD from uh, in psychology, mm. and I was uh, at the Department of Psychology at the university, 
and there was a lot of uh, you know emotion uh, researchers there and they said told me that children are not able to to um to be aware of having two uh different feelings at the same time until they are at least eight years old and mm -hmm. i was there talking to three-year-olds and they told me that something was scary and funny at the same time. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I found out that the, those uh, emotion researchers probably didn't ask the right questions. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at least when you talk to children about something that they actually, that was an everyday experience for them, uh, it made more sense and they were able to articulate that. So the ambivalent feeling of doing this kind of play and that it was that the children were so aware of it and so conscious about, about it was uh, kind of su uh, a surprise. Uh, and, and very, yeah, and, and very fun, I yes. think. And also, of course, talking to children about risky play is, is just a gift. Yeah. Uh, all those stories about excitement, about hearts just jumping out of their their chests, and and they that they uh, they are just laughing and they can't stop, and 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 if they are whittling with knives, all the many liters of blood that <laughs> that came out if they they cut themselves. Yeah. It was dramatic stories, but mm. uh, but they were so proud and and they were very happy about telling me about it. Can you recall any of those questions that you asked children? Because one of the challenges I find time and time again when you start to talk to children about play and risky play, by asking the question, we're kind of asking them to define our interpretation of play. How do you get around that? Yeah, of, that was something I had to give a lot of thought because you can't go to a child, at least in Norway, and ask them uh, what's risky play. Mm. <laughs> they, they wouldn't understand risk. Yeah, it's a it's a too abstract con concept for them. So it was kind of long conversations when where we talked about what uh, what made them feel afraid when they were playing, what made them feel thrilled and excited uh when did they think something was too scary uh and when was it just about enough scary um yeah things like that and it was quite open interviews and conversations so that they could uh define themselves that image of the children whittling that i've <laughs> i've had in my yeah. presentation so much i'm still blown away to see the um, reaction of the participants with the, these little hands holding sticks and having knives and they freak out still. Children are, I, I've done a lot of uh, child interviews and child conversations uh, during a lot of my, my different projects uh, in my research and children are, are very good interviewees. Uh, they, are, they are very bodily in their way of expressing their answers. Yeah, we were just um, yeah. fortunate enough to um, put together a childhood summit where we had 15 keynote speakers and it was all children. Um, and mm. then we did the child-friendly cities research of um, children articulating what they like and don't like in their suburbs and then recreating their suburbs as they see fit and asking the children the questions around, okay, why have you chosen to put a spa here? 
and one little mm. girl. It was great. She says, um, it's not for the children. I said, okay, who's it for? She says, oh, it's for the parents. I said, why do the parents need the spa? Because they just all need to relax, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and why, yeah. why do they need to relax? Accurate observation. Yeah. yeah. I said, why do they need to relax? And she says, oh, because if they don't relax, they'll just yell at us over the littlest thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like, only a child could give you that answer. Yeah. And it always yeah. rocks me, like some of the answers and the, some of the um, really heartfelt stories about children's experiences in their neighbourhood and sitting down and having the conversation. Um, yeah. You obviously captured that child voice really beautifully. Um, when it comes to those categories of risk and play, can you just give a quick breakdown? We've talked about these six categories and now listeners like, what are they? Yeah. <laughs> Well, the most popular one, uh, both in what I saw the most in observations and also the, the first thing that both the children and the, the teachers talked about was playing great heights. Mm. So that would be when children are climbing uh, in play structures or up in trees or jumping down from high places or swinging with a high pendulum so that they are high up. Uh, everything that goes on up in the air um, and it, I haven't defined um, how many meters or feet or anything like that, because this is a very subjective yeah. uh, feeling when you kind of think that you are high enough for having this thrill and excitement. Um, and of course, the, the risk here is to, to fall down uh, and injure yourself. Uh, the second category uh, or second most popular category was uh, play with high speed, uh, which was uh, yeah, sledding fast, running fast, bicycling uh, fast, mm. uh, skating fast, skiing fast, all of these things when you have, you kind of have a speed where you're, you, you're not able to stop at the second. So you can crash into something or someone uh, around you. Um, and then you have uh, rough and tumble play, uh, where you're play fighting, play chasing, uh, play wrestling, uh, wrestling with sticks, uh, all of these kind of roughhousing uh, fighting uh, plays. Uh, and then you have uh, play uh, near dangerous elements. Uh, and I know uh, actually during my PhD work, I was uh, in Sydney <laughs> in Australia for, yeah. for a period at Macquarie University. And I found out that uh, play near dangerous elements is qu quite a Scandinavian thing uh, because <laughs> uh, in our preschools, we often go on hikes mm. to forest areas and nature areas. Yeah. And there, you don't have um, you don't have fences. You have uh, maybe cliffs. You have deep water, yeah. uh, things like that. So dangerous elements where children are playing uh, nearby, and maybe they're not so focused on the dangerous elements. So the practitioners and teachers were very uh, focused on that. That yeah. this could be a risk. Um, and then you have uh, play uh, where children. Um, go exploring alone 
uh, where there's a chance that they could uh, get lost. And that's also a category uh, where you're not in the fenced playground in the preschool. So you go out, you could go out to a forest area and the children are allowed to to go on a little hike on their own. So they had to take uh, responsibility for for what they're uh, yeah, where they're going, and if they're a, and to be able to find uh, back uh, by themselves, uh, to yeah, to take um, responsibility for their own, own choices. And the last one is uh, play with dangerous tools, where children are allowed to to play with knives, uh, hammer and nails, uh, maybe ropes, um, and even in Norway in, in nature and outdoor preschools, they. Uh, have uh, they're able to to use saws yep. and in some occasions also actually axes. Yeah, excellent, yeah. excellent. And um, you'll be happy to know the Forest School has been hugely accepted in Australia. We rebranded it as Bush Kindy, and yeah, um, a lot of a lot of um, early childhood centres across Australia have a bush kindy program where they go out and use the the vegetation around them to explore. Um, we've got an amazing um, body called Nature Play and they're in each state and they'll actually go out and support people to do their risk assessments and um, be able to liberate the children from the fences. That's great. Great to hear. Um, with these categories in risk in play, from a evolutionary standpoint if we're engaging in an activity that could cause injury death you remember just a few generations ago a broken leg could mean death why is it still so important to our learning self-discovery to risk injury to risk death for the sake of exploration yeah evolutionary it's uh, i mean it's quite a paradox that uh, we're kind of we're born with an urge to seek mm. risk, uh, and it c- could injure us and even kill us. Uh, when and also evolutionary, it's a paradox because the in evolution, our main goals is to survive and mm. to reproduce. So, so and and but that's that is only <laughs> kind of giving us a stronger argument that this must have a function also evolutionary Mm. you know human beings are probably the most helpless uh individuals or or creatures when we're born you know horses are after a little while standing up on their feet and and feet and try and start to walk while human beings we're (laughs) we're kind of lying on our backs and we're we're yeah we're not able to to walk or or do anything uh, ourselves and and uh, to for to help and we have very slow development the first years compared to yeah. to other um, species so uh, evolutionary we have been born with some fears that will help us not kill ourselves yeah. <laughs> in in the beginning of, of our lives so for instance we have uh, an innate fear for uh, great heights hmm. uh, so that we're not just crawling uh, out on top of a cliff or, or a great height. Uh, we have an innate fear for deep water so that we're not just jumping into water and killing ourselves before we can swim. Um, and these fears 
uh, we have uh, in our early childhood, but they're and they're helping us to survive. But we're not supposed to keep these fears the rest of our lives. That would be very impractical. So during play, we're we're um, exploring uh, these fears and these fear stimuli. So uh, and trying and and learning how to handle them. What's beautiful about that is talking about that the vulnerability of birth being being in such a vulnerable state not being able to yep. move and everything like that but it's kind of, we're born vulnerable yet we spend the rest yep. of our lives trying not to be yeah but, but it's through vulnerability <laughs> yeah. and the acceptance of failure that actually empowers us to move beyond our vulnerability and find strength and, and we need that urge to explore the unknown and things that could be a little risky and that could trigger a little fear. Yep. Because if we're not, if we didn't have that urge, we would not develop. So for instance, when a one and a half, two-year-old child is standing up and tr- taking his or her first step, it's a huge risk. They've never never done it before. Uh, they don't know if the foot would, you know, hold in the step. Uh, they're letting their arms go. They have kind of tried it with their arms hold on uh, to something, uh, but they don't know if they will just fall uh, if they when they try. But still, we have the urge to do it. And all human beings, normally developing human beings, are walking, and they learn by themselves how how to walk. So, and this goes for all those physical and motor skill development that we have. If we, if we didn't have the drive to test, the drive to explore, the drive to try new and unknown movements, we would not develop. Risk is the ingredient to, for innovation. You know, you're pushing beyond yeah. the boundaries. You're pushing, oh, this might work, it might not. And if you're not, yeah. have a strong enough disposition and develop that disposition in your youth, how are you going to do that in your later years? Yeah, and that's a good point because uh, there's a lot of researchers who also uh, parallel risk-seeking, like physical risk-seeking mm. with the social and economic risk-seeking. And, you know, if we didn't have people uh, that was... Uh, willing to put their heads on the block uh, in, you know, in, you know, uh, uh, development within, uh, well, innovations. Yep. Uh, we would probably not be where we are uh, as human beings and the world society uh, today. Yeah, I love the example of the um, surviving as the hunter in the farmer's world. The hunter's out there taking the risk, going, yep. I'm, I'm going to chase the thing that's scary. I'm going to chase the risk. But we also need the farmers. But what we can't have is a world of farmers staying yeah. safe and just focusing on these very secure, tested and proven processes. Yeah. And that, that's a good point because uh, the, the critique um, on evolutionary theories and evolutionary psychology is that if, if, uh, if we kind of looked at that, everyone would be similar survival of the fittest but that's not that's not the case 
uh, evolution secures that we are diverse enough to be able to develop as a group of people, as a community, as a society. Yeah, and it makes me reflect and think of a line that I've read many of times of yours. It's about um, experiencing uncertainty and the feeling of coming out alive. <laughs> yeah, that's a great one. <laughs> it's a great <laughs> experience. <laughs> and and I think uh, I think children experience it. They're probably not so conscious that it's a life and death matter. Yeah. Uh, and and mostly they're not taking you know that uh, high risks. Uh, so it's life threatening. Yeah. But for adults, it's um, you know sensation seekers who are base jumping, parachuting, doing all those uh, kinds of things. That's that's the description that they have, and that they're feeling so they're feeling so alive. They're feeling so close to to life when they're doing it, uh, and it's because it's it's close to death. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's not a matter of adrenaline; it's a dopamine, is my understanding. Yeah. And yeah. There's everyone's like, oh, they're a they're an adrenaline seeker. I was like, no, adrenaline doesn't actually isn't fun. <laughs> The dopamine no. of surviving and coming out the other side is the, is the yeah scratching the, the adrenaline. Sh the adrenaline sharpens you, yeah. uh, but the dopamine gives you the 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 rush. Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned there about the psychology, considering like physical and or emotional risk. Um, for mm. you and your research and being involved in this topic for so long, where do you sit in your opinion with it? Is it one and the other, or they're both synergistic? Well, they're they're both. Um, since since I come from um, like physical education and sport, uh, I was interested in the physical part of, of of risky play, and also because most of the things that I saw when adults tried to restrict risky play was physical, uh, like cutting down branches on trees, removing playground equipment, uh, things like that. Uh, so that, that was my starting point. But of course, there are many kinds of risks. Mm. And I'm doing research also on bullying uh, among yeah. children. And that the kind, that's more of an emotional risk as, yeah. and also social risk being mm. like taking the risk of inviting yourself into play with other children isn't is, is a huge risk you could be rejected and that's not a good feeling yeah. so so of course there are many kinds of risks uh, I, it just happens happened that i i started to focus on on the physical uh yeah yeah and i love the look on people's faces when you start to talk about risk and you know they're thinking of that default the tree and they're climbing a tree and falling yep. and then to open up the realm of that some child for, for some children the biggest risk they could be exposed to is going to play with a group and having that yep. social interaction a question yep. does the deprivation of physical risk impact the emotional well-being yeah okay moving on <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, we have data on that, actually, or, or at least we have data uh, on the association between risky play and children's well-being. So it's, it's 
uh, it's quite a strong association between that. So when children are allowed to play, to do risky play, uh, the well-being uh, goes up. Um, and Bray, from like because you have to need, meet their basic need to be able to explore and experience, and then it gets up to the, is it due to the lack of mastery? Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, both uh, the lack of the the mastery experiences uh, and the excitement, and as you said, the the, the thrill and the dopamine, uh, and it's also I think due to the lack of freedom and autonomy. Yeah, being able to decide yourself and feeling that you're in control of your own everyday life. Uh, so if you have um, an interest in engaging in risky play and are not allowed or restricted from it, it's um, it's it's not a good thing for your well-being. Was there any parts? Uh, I'm not just referring to that study specifically. You've done many, written many a paper on the subject. Um, what is there any standouts that really surprised you in your research that you were like, wow, didn't anticipate that? Well, I, I everything <laughs> surprised me. Well, one thing that surprised me was how accurately children were able to, so that young children were able to assess risk uh, when we talked about it and how conscious they were about the risk that they were taking. Uh, you might think that children are just, you know, throwing themselves out in play and, and not thinking of what they're doing, but they were very aware of it. They were very concentrated. And what I saw was that the worst thing that the adults could do was to shout at the children and, and tell them to, to be careful because then they were, you know, uh, taking them out of this concentration. And that's when injuries happen yeah. <laughs> when they're not being able to concentrate on this and how to handle it. Um, I was also uh, a bit surprised, or at least I learned something about my own country because I started this project and this research, as I said, because I was frustrated on Norwegian playground rules and what we did to, to the play environments of our children. Uh, and I thought we were very restrictive uh, on children's play, but uh, it took me just one or two international conferences. And then I found out that we're quite liberal in Norway and in Scandinavia. So, so, so I was surprised how, how um, bad it was for children out there in the world, at least, at least in the Western world and mm. the, yeah. Uh, like when I came to Australia, I thought you were um, the outdoor, ultimate outdoor people, the, the the kind of cradle for extreme sport. And I came to a country where children weren't allowed to any, do anything. Uh, and my colleagues to told me it had happened in probably just one generation, yeah. uh, the, the surplus safety and, you know, the safety hysteria. Uh, and I looked at England and the USA, and I really saw that, uh, well, at least I went back home to Norway and thought I, I have to protect what we already have. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> and I think the observation I've made is that adaption of the American culture around mm. news, around um, children's physical activity. It's like n mm. not not even close to the Scandinavian models. And that's why 
as I became an educator, reading the Scandinavian papers and yours, and um, that was like, this stuff is going to work. What I also discovered was how good Norwegian and Scandinavian children were to assess and handle risks, even at a very young age. And I've also had a lot of researchers coming to Norway to to visit uh, nature and outdoor preschools who are amazed how independent they are, how how they manage any kind of uh, topography, uh, terrain elements, uh, even when they're, you know, one and a half, two, two and a half years old. Mm. They're really skilled at a very young age. So, and, and but that's kind of a circle, you know? So because in Norway, we let children explore at such a young age, they, they get skilled and we relax more because we know that they will handle it. If you're not letting them and not observing them managing it, you will be anxious of what could happen and you it, it would be just the kind of a negative spiral yeah. so so it's uh yeah uh, that's also an important message i think yeah and when you're going to share this message with other countries and coming to australia and america where it is more of the surplus safety vibe what's the messaging you use to create a culture of courage for our children uh, I, ju- I, I just have to, to present my research and try to be as clear as possible on the, 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 the you know, the, the empirical data that we have and, and the knowledge that we have. Uh, but I know that in many countries, just using the word risk is controversial. Yeah. Uh, at least in, in the US, it, it, they're, they're not very happy about, about that word. Uh, and I think different cultures should use whatever concept or word that they, they like as, as long as they uh, know that they're talking about the same thing and yeah. that it is about risk. It is the risk that makes us restrict children's play. Uh, the, I, I think the, the most important message is the benefits that children get from uh, engaging in that kind of play and also what they miss out on and that um, if you're not letting them explore risks at a young age and in their childhood mm. they would probably have a higher chance of getting injured uh, when they're older yeah because I, they missed out on that I feel like we're shooting ourselves in the foot a bit by preaching so loudly on risky play and I'll unpack that due to the perception of risk being bad. And plus it removes the listener from the fact that everything can have risk. What's your way of conveying um, the benefits to like a parent that's really risk adverse? <laughs> well, it, it's a little bit about the same thing. And I, I'm asked to have a lot of uh lectures and presentations mm. at uh, Norwegian uh, preschools and I always uh, say to the staff I would like to talk to both you and the parents at the same time uh, it's it's good for as usually they have discussed this uh, mm. or they have had a case of something yep. that made it this come to the surface um, 
and um, coming in as a neutral person, person mm. that don't have any, you know, uh, opinion on this particular uh, preschool, I could tell them uh, my research results. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could tell them about the benefits, what the children are missing out on. Uh, and it's not only development, it's also experiences, mm-hmm. as I said, well-being, uh, having a great time. Uh, and then they could discuss themselves how they will manage this. And I usually also tell the staff in the preschools that this should be a topic on the parents' meetings. And also uh, in the, at least in Norway, we have conversations between the, the pedagogue and the parents about yeah. the child. Uh, and in all those meetings, this should also be a topic. Uh, how much risk do the children manage? Uh, what do the preschool want to allow for that child? Are the parents happy with that? And if you have done that before something happens, uh, an injury or something, it would be much easier to resolve it when something happens because you won't be, you know, trying to shoot the other person or blame the other uh, other part. That said, I've also done research on injuries in Norwegian preschools. We don't, almost have no, no serious injuries. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's actually not a problem. If you let children learn how to manage risks, they will manage risks to take in care a good of way. Themselves. Yeah, and they and the injuries won't happen. Yeah, small bumps and scrapes. Yes, we have a lot of those, but in serious injuries, no. And many people say to me, "Well, you must have a lot of injuries in Norwegian preschools since they're allowed to do so many crazy things," but we don't. No. And that's, I think, a result of letting them try this at an early age. Yeah, we um, recently did an article with the ABC News Network in Australia and we visited one of our um, early childhood centres that we renovated and they had about a 60% drop in incidents in one year by adding the diverse categories of risk and play into their playground. So it created Exactly, great that's a great example. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a great example. Yeah. Yeah, and even the director was like, I'm scared someone might die. Like, it, not being serious, but she was just conveying how nervous she is about, yeah. you know, we had a 1.6 metre platform that the children can go out on and previously the highest thing they went on was six, 600 mil high. But, but also for parents, I think, uh, talking to parents, uh, uh, my advice is to go out and play with the children. Um, They should uh, play with them if they're invited in. Mm -hmm. If they're not invited into the play, at least they should observe them uh, so that they get to know what the children can manage. I think that's the the thing that preschool teachers and preschool practitioners, uh, they are more knowledge about the child's competences usually mm. than the parents because their practitioners are spending more time with the children around the children when they're playing so they actually know more about the child in that sense while parents are busy with you know after school activities with mm. dinner with homeworks with other children uh, so they don't spend that amount of time uh, playing with or around child being around the child so getting to know your child 
competencies will make you relax more because you would know that they're able, they can handle to climb that high in the tree. And then you can also take a step back and wait a while until you yeah, go into the situation and try to resolve it or help the child. You could wait and see if they can manage it themselves because you can be more relaxed. And I guess uh, Tim Gill told you about the seven second rules, mm. uh, which we both experienced in yeah. Toronto. Uh, actually, we visited a preschool there together and the staff there told us they have used the 17 second rules, rule. Uh, and they always counted to 17 before they intervened in something that yeah. they thought was scary. I also had a preschool teacher student uh, uh, several years back and she told me she had glue in, glue in her pockets. That was the same thing. So when she wanted to intervene in something, she put her hands in the, her pockets huh. and, and imagined he had, she had glue in her pockets so she couldn't intervene. Yeah. And then she always waited a bit longer and then everything resolved. Yeah, it would prompt the response, not the reaction. Yeah. Um, is there any certain play theory that you use as a framework within your study or play theory? Uh, uh, no, not a well, play theory is... Um, it's the underlying thing, but any like... Yeah, it, it's not a play theory, but I, I, my work heavily rests on the theory of affordances. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so it's more universal ecological theory, mm -hmm. uh, but it's about how we as humans or any species interpret our environment and how we utilize our environment, yeah. like what kind of actions, activities we feel that envi our environment invites us to do. So, nice. and, and that's more like in it's a little bit more unconscious uh, and sometimes of course also conscious, but it's, it's more a um, um, perception of yeah. uh, the environment around us. Yeah. So when a child sees a tree, they would usually, children are more interpreting their environment more functionally than adults. So yeah. if the, a child sees a tree, it would see, is this a climbable tree? while an adult would probably look at it and say well, that's a beautiful tree it's green it has beautiful flowers and the climbing part is not yeah. <laughs> not that prominent yeah, yeah, yeah. anymore so yeah. so yeah that makes perfect sense <clears throat> um you are continuing your research um what what research are you getting into at the moment and what are you excited about with that well, at the moment, I'm fin finishing uh, a project about the, how to develop good physical environments in, in preschools, both indoors and outdoors, where we've had uh, 86 children uh, for a longer period. Uh, and we have looked at exactly that um, theory of affordances and how children utilize their environment mm -hmm. for play and how we can change the environment to promote even more play and different kind of diversity uh, of play. Yeah. Uh, and in that project, we also looked at risky play and we had the opportunity because we had a large data material, uh, we had the opportunity to look at the prevalence of risky play. Uh, 
And we found that within all this play that children engaged in when they were allowed to play freely and no one told them what to do, uh, we found around uh, uh, 10% of risky play. Wow. Uh, and it was thirteen, a little bit above 13% outdoors. Yep. And surprisingly more than I thought, indoors in the indoor environment, because we found more than 7% of the play indoors was also risky play. Yep. Uh, and interesting, well, this is Scandinavia, it's Norway. There were no gender differences. So girls engaged in it just as much as boys. Yeah. And uh, we and we didn't find any age differences. So it seems like it's a universal kind of play that all children want to engage in. Uh, and it's quite a prominent kind of play. Uh, like around 10% is uh, the same as we found on symbolic play, actually. Symbolic play being... Being role play, right. uh, drama, you know, yep. like dramatic play. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, awesome. I look forward to you. Please send it, share it. I'll share it with yeah. everyone I can. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, finally, what what's excited you most about the research you've done and the research that you continue to do in the field of risk and play? Um, I'm I'm very excited that um, so many people are interested in this uh, subject, uh, like you and other researchers, so that we are more and more researchers that are actually doing um, and getting knowledge uh, about this. Yep. And also, I've, I'm very excited that uh, more and more countries are trying to turn around this uh, safety focus yep. um, notion uh, and culture. Uh, and and also, I'm like here in Norway, I'm very happy that the last curriculum for preschools in Norway actually has risky play in it. And it's now by law uh, that preschool teachers in Norway are supposed to let children engage in risky play and learn how to manage risks. Well, another feel-good thing for you to wrap up today. Um, as a part of the Early Years Learning Framework, um, the centres are assessed every three years and they have a come through our, what's it called? Not R&D, assessment and rating. They go through an assessment and rating process. And if you want mm -hmm. to achieve an exceeding standard of education in your centre, you have to show evidence of children engaging in risk in play. Great. So. That really warms my heart. <laughs> that's very, that's So we're, um, we're, we're trying to fight back the missing, missing it for a generation, going back to beyond the good old days and doing something from a real ethical, loving place. So thank you so much for giving us this beautiful framework to work from. Thank you so much for um, inspiring me personally to get this message out here. As a child growing up with risk and being um, one of six boys and then moving into an environment in schools as I progress through schools that um, strip that away. Um, mm. I just, you inspired me to be that influence that turns this around for children. So I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you very much for this very nice conversation and for in inviting me here. 
Thank you for joining us on another Play It Forward Worthy podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did and you're ready and inspired to take action. Like, subscribe, tell a friend, and thank you again for joining us on another Play It Forward Worthy podcast.